Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by McSweeney's, publisher of Half a Life, a memoir by Darren Strauss. David Lipsky, the author of Absolutely American, and although, of course, you end up becoming yourself, has this to say about Half a Life. Quote, Darren Strauss's Half a Life is the best anything I've read, novel, memoir, story, in a very long time. Incredibly, it's also the most moving and inspiring and challenging. It's a book that asks you to live up to it. This book has the greatest weight-to-power ratio I've ever seen. Read it. Be swallowed. Come out changed. If you've faced a death, of course you should read it. But everyone faces a life, and so the rest of us should read it too. End quote. That's Half a Life by Darren Strauss. It's available from McSweeney's. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. My name is Brad Listy. This is Other People. Welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you listening. Got a great show for you today. The guest is Blake Butler. Blake Butler is the author of several books. They are Ever, that's the name of it. It's called Ever. It's a novella, Scorch Atlas, which is a novel in stories published by Featherproof Books, which is one of the better independent presses going. And then recently, this year, he published a novel with Harper Perennial called There Is No Year. And it was met with great critical acclaim. It's a very innovative book. It's an exciting book. Uh, Blake is an innovative writer. And now he has written Nothing. That's the name of the book. It's his first work of nonfiction. It's called Nothing, A Portrait of Insomnia. Blake, for a lot of his life, for most or if not all of his life, has dealt with sleep disorders and he's written a book about it. And to be honest with you, to call it a portrait of insomnia almost does it a disservice because it feels like it's a, a, about a lot more than that. It feels like uh, you read this book and you learn about how we live now. You learn some important stuff about how we live now. So you don't have to be an insomniac to get something out of it. I'm tempted to make a corny joke about how nothing is a book about insomnia that won't put you to sleep, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. 
So, Blake Butler, in just a moment, before we get there, I did get an email, and I want to address that. I got a question from a listener who would prefer that her last name not be mentioned on the air. So I'm going to try to honor that. Her name is Marianne. She wrote me a very short email, and it reads, Dear Brad, why are you doing this? That's it. She wants to know why I'm doing this. I assume she wants to know why I'm doing this show. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe that's what she's asking me. She's not asking me like, you know, why are you breathing or whatever it is, but I'm assuming she's asking, why are you doing this show? Why am I sitting here in my home office alone with a microphone on my desk doing two shows a week, talking to authors about their books and their writing and about their lives? Well, I think it's a good question. And I think it's something that should be addressed, especially here in the early going as the show rolls out. Um, I think it's all tied together. I think that the work that I do as a writer is a part of it. And then that led to the work that I do as the editor at the nervous breakdown, which is, uh, you know, my online magazine and community. And, uh, I think that writers ultimately are a group of people for whom I feel great, uh, kinship and sympathy. And I, I, I'm, I'm sort of romantic about the whole pursuit of writing. And I'm also sort of mystified by it. Why people have this compulsion, why I have this compulsion, uh, how difficult the work is, how lonely the work often is, how isolating. And then there's a part of me, like the dark humor part of me, just finds it absurd that we would all be sitting in front of a computer screen, staring at a flashing cursor, trying to put the words in the right order. It can get to seeming absurd, especially when the words are coming slowly and it's difficult and it's a grind and you've hit some headwinds. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, I'm fascinated by all of that. I'm, I've gotten a chance to work with, uh, literally hundreds of writers over the past five years, uh, doing the nervous breakdown. And so I hear a lot from writers about writing and about the pursuit and about the struggles and about the successes and all the rest. And uh, I'm also kind of a, an audio nerd. I love radio. I love podcasts. And it just sort of struck me um, that a show like this might be a way to give authors a platform and to further the conversation and to perpetuate book culture and to get people reading and so on. And, it, you know, a lot of it, too, is me wanting a sense of community, wanting to connect with other writers, wanting to hear what they have to say. How are they going about it? How are they dealing with the adversity that will inevitably come along at some point? You know, it's very difficult for writers to make any kind of living, especially in the literary uh, genre. And so that can't really be the driving factor. That can't be the driving force behind why you do it. So w what is the driving force for these writers? That's what I want to know. And then how do you manage to exist what kind of day jobs do you have? How do you do it? That's what I want to know. Stuff like that. Um, you know, how people approach the work, how they fight through what you got to fight through in order to get it done. So there's that part of it on the curiosity level. And then there's the curiosity part that uh, seems to be rooted in the internet. And, you know, like most people, I sit in front of a computer for a large amount of time pretty much every day. And I'm, I'm running social media feeds for the nervous breakdown. I'm running social media feeds for this show. 
other times I'm just procrastinating, but I'm staring at my Facebook wall or I'm staring at my Twitter feed and I'm seeing all of these faces. I'm seeing, as Blake and I joke about uh, in our conversation, I'm seeing all these heads. There are heads on my screen every day. And I'm connected with a lot of writers online and I'm seeing writers' heads. And repeatedly I'm seeing them. I'm seeing status updates. Maybe I'm reading a blog post. Maybe I'm reading commentary on something that's happening. Whatever it is, you start to get a gestalt understanding of these people, or at least you think you do. And you start to become curious about them. Uh, they, They start to become almost like fictional characters in your mind. At least that's how it is for me. And so I think part of the impulse for wanting to do this show is to lift these people off the screen and into your ears and to bring a new dimension to it. So you can actually hear their voices, hear what they think, hear them talk a little bit, hear them discuss their uh, personal histories, their backgrounds, their approach to writing, etc. I want to take those heads and put them into your ears. It's about putting heads in your ears. Do you know what I'm saying? So that, I think, Marianne, is why I do this. I'm sure there are other reasons. There might be reasons that I'm forgetting, but that's, that's the answer for now. Uh, it's been fun so far, and I appreciate the kind words from everybody. The, uh, the response has been uh, terrific and a great, uh, pleasant surprise. So I'm going to keep going as long as I can, two shows a week. And today, Blake Butler is the guest. In addition to all the books he's written, he's also very active in the literary community online, and uh, I think most prominently with HTML Giant. And for those of you listening... Uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with HTML Giant. It is a terrific site, uh, htmlgiant.com. It's totally worth a visit if you haven't seen it yet, and it's worth a bookmark. So check it out. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, that's all I got. I'm going to step aside now. This is my conversation with Blake Butler, the author of Nothing. Yeah, I mean, some of that, I mean, sleep in general is so amorphous, even for science. Like, they know so little about it, even though it's such a prevalent thing. So I guess some of that exploration did help, and it got some of those things out of me that I've always, you know, um, been in there, like, the recurring dreams and like so much of my life is around that. So I guess getting a, a finer lens on it 
does probably make sense as, as, as having helped do that. Um, I also feel like it kind of level, like I just have felt leveled out over the past couple of years where like I used to be so hell bent on like getting to a point where I could make something like that, where that, um, I almost never, I just never rested even when I was awake, you know, like it, it was just constant anxiety without purpose. So yeah, having, having nailed that down and, and say some of those things, I'm like, even even if there's no clear answer, it, it makes sense that it's like, it's now an object that sits on my table. So, um, that's a little easier to grapple with maybe. Yeah. I mean, and, and do you, do you ever, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess one of the things that pops to mind when I, uh, when I was reading the book is like, uh, the level of research that you did. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to know more about that. I mean, it, it, it seems like you did an incredible amount of reading. And one of my favorite sections of the book uh, is the part where you're doing kind of this like brief history of sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, and like there's like this, you know, in a way it's almost un- it's unsettling, you know, when you read it, like this constant uh, momentum towards the present day where it seems like we've you know, things have gotten worse and not better, you know, and it's this constant information flow and this constant light flickering in people's eyes. And, you know, I was, right. it just, it rings so true. And it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like you did an, an, you know, incredible amount of research. And there are also, you know, so many different, uh, there, there are different things included in, you know, the book that don't on the surface maybe seem like they're related to sleep or sleep issues, but mm-hmm. then you think about them and it's, you know, it starts to, starts to become clear that there are, it adds a measure of depth. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, I, I started reading my reading, uh, for, for the book, uh, by buying a bunch of like already existing books about insomnia, which were all pretty much across the board, really dry scientifically. And then, Either they had a gimmick like, oh, I'm going to visit every sleep center uh, across the nation or like 50 different sleep centers and like do research, like see how it feels to go through that. And it just seemed like they were – a lot of the books seemed to just revel in the idea of uh, of sleeplessness and insomnia as like a as, a as a romantic thing. Like, oh, I have this trouble and you don't understand and it's a disease like anything else. And that just seems like bullshit to me. Like uh, – I don't know. For me, it was more um, a product of obsession, and it's not really uh It's not something that you bear. It's it's a product of yourself. So yeah, a lot of those things. Like when I, when I was originally generating the book, I like I knew I wanted to talk about things that that were the things that kept me awake, which are the, which a lot of it co- seems to come from obsession, um, like with uh, the the you know. Um, sex, there's sexual obsession and there's like work, work obsession. And there's just, those are the things that make your brain not able to stop because you want to somehow confront those things you're obsessed with. But with bigger, when it's a bigger thing like that, you don't really have a way. So that's why someone like me who, who gets obsessed with stuff like that, you almost can never rest. Cause it's like, you want to, it's like, you want to beat this video game that has no end, you know? Um, or, or has no clear, you don't know what your goal is. So you're just trying to like play this game and beat this game that, that you don't even know what you're doing inside of. So, um, so that made the, that made the research more fun because I had this basic ground that I didn't want it to be this gimmick and I didn't want it to be, 
you know, a, a dry science manual or anything like that. So I, I wanted to be experience based, but then funded with, with actual fact. Um, so I had, I had the ba- my, my structure already. And then all the reading was actually really fun and, and exciting. I was surprised by, it. I'd never really done research before and I always kind of dreaded it, but this was all like supporting and, and like, um, uh, helping draw out some of the ideas that I had always had. So, um, it made the research more, um, uh, engrossing rather than like work, if that makes sense. Well, you know, and you, you know, and you stitch, you stitch it all together. Really. Uh, it's really fascinating how it's all stitched together. It's beautifully done. And I, I, I have to imagine that like, as you're doing research and you know, you're sort of going off into spaces that uh, like, again, aren't necessarily immediately tied to sleep disorders, at least like in the public mind. You must it must, mm-hmm. have been, it must have been exciting to find those like threads and be like, oh my god, you know, like, <laughs> like just like the invention of the waterbed or tanning beds or you know, like the, all these different things that uh, you bring up in the book. I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean that, that those things are, seem to like the the more objects there are, the more there are things that are like awake around you, and and those seem more important to the the mindset that causes that than than like. I can't even remember what they would like attribute it to, but they, uh, so many insomniacs that that I was trying to read just wanted it to be this unknowable, unquantifiable thing that's in their blood or something. And like, I think that's true to some extent, but I think more so it's all those objects that everyone is kind of plagued by. And, and some people can sleep through it, but I think it also affects like, your waking state as much as it does your sleeping state. And it kind of levels the two off to me. Like I think, I think being awake now seems a lot more like being asleep in general. Um, cause there's just so much you just, you, you can't even remember anything like a few, it, it, it seems hard to even have anything be meaningful a lot of the time because there's so much, you know, something big happens, but then the next day something big happens and it all slows down. So, yeah, I have, a, I, have a, I, have a, I have a terrible memory. Like I, it's, sort of, it's sort of it sort of uh, distresses me how bad my memory is. Yeah, what what are you worst at remembering? I mean, just everything. Like I, you know, I have this uh, a friend of mine here in Los Angeles. I went to high school with, and he's got this, uh-huh. he's got this like steel trap mind. He remembers everything from high school. Yeah, and he'll be like telling me stories about like, oh, remember when we did this, or remember this person. I have no yeah. like no recollection of it. Entire people, yeah. like people I was friends with, I probably have. Heard, you know, it's like it's just bizarre, and I just it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, it just it slips away. So, um, I guess like another question that I have, uh, just you know, picking the book up and, and leafing through it, is that you you uh, one of the dedications is in memory of David Foster Wallace. I found that interesting. Yeah. Can you explain that? I mean, is there, is there, I mean, there's gotta be obviously a reason why you felt like he, you know, he was connected or his work was connected to this particular subject matter. Yeah. Well, in general, like he was kind of the, the, one of the reasons I started writing at all. Um, um, I, I, I was going to school at Georgia tech and I was like a computer science major and I was, I, I read a lot as a child and my mom read to me as a child, but I had kind of like reached this point where I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about really contemporary literature and I didn't really, I read here and there like Dragon Lance or like Stephen King or something, but I hadn't really explored a lot of stuff. And so, so I, for some reason, I don't remember how I found it, but for some reason I got infinite just for Christmas 
And I started reading that and that just like, that totally changed my understanding of what writing does. Um, just to, so much about his, the way he speaks and the way he was able to get into the way a, a brain actually works instead of just like telling a story, like storytelling is cool. But like for me, um, the, the way he breaks down just pure mental thought and obsession, like his, his voice is so obsessive. It's, it's like a great mirror of, of all that stuff we're talking about, how, how it, how it affects the way people think in general. And it's, for someone like him, who's so brilliant, like it's, it's kind of just, you just sit there and watch his brain grapple with all this stuff in the midst of supposedly telling a, a story. But, um, so yeah, so he changed, he changed me in that way, but also it seems a bit more, um, fine tuned because, uh, it, it seems complicated, like his, his, his suicide and like, all the stuff he seemed to be under, like he seemed to be under this supreme pressure that um, was a product of, of himself, but it was also a product of his surroundings. You know, like I can't even begin to try to iterate that as a, as a, as what it was, but it seems like he, he, he is a, he is a, a loss that is very, it feels very personal at, at the same time as it feels a product of, the way things go now. Um, yeah. and I don't really know what that means, but, um, no, I get it. I get it. I mean, he seems, uh, it, it is hard to talk about, but it's like, he seemed to, to carry so much, you know, his, he, under, yeah. he had such a depth of understanding and like such a big brain, like just an indescribably right. like, like a Halley's comet brain, you know, <laughs> like he just, exactly. That's a great one. That's a yeah. good one. And then at the same time, you know, he was, he was uh, as human as anybody else. He was frail. And, in some ways, I think like his depth of understanding and like the powers of his mind. I mean, it can sound a little bit uh, melodramatic and, and tragic, but I, I, I kind of feel like when you have a brain, and, and his brain was like such a sensitive instrument, uh, and, and he was also, you know, he also dealt with mental illness and whatnot, and it was all tied together. It was it was just a difficult burden to bear. Yeah, it's 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 a supreme tragedy, and I don't really, I still like, I can understand like why he did what he did, like he had all these problems and, and, but it's still just to me is like a person that had reached that, that level of, I mean, that's probably what did it. Like the, the level of computation he was working at just seems, I don't know. (laughs) It's scary. I'm glad that I, that I don't have that to some extent, like, um, because it's, yeah, I saw him read one time when I was in, um, when I was in Boston, I flew up to Boston specifically to see him read and he just looked like he like it was in a church and he he did this reading he read from a from a story in oblivion and um afterward he took some questions and just like people were asking these weird questions that didn't really have anything to do with his real work it was like oh why do you like footnotes and you know um what what uh i love you and just like very very amorphous questions that he just and then afterwards he, he went to sign he was just pouring sweat it was really hot in there, but he's also a sweater. So he was like, he looked like he was like out of a bathtub or something. And then I remember I was like first in line to get my book signed. And he just, he like looked up at me and I think he was, he had done like four or five dates for the whole book. Like, and that was the first time he'd been out in a while. And I was like, he just looked up like he was caught in a, uh, in a trap or something like, you know, like why, how did I get here? And like, I understand why people are here, but it was like the childish and, and like, old manish at the same time. And I, and I said something stupid, like, you know, thank you. Thank you for coming out and giving us the chance to like, see, hear you talk. And he just kind of like 
looked at me and <laughs> and he just looked even more like rabbit like I don't know what what to say and um and I just took the book and left but it, it definitely like I'll remember the way he looked at me then as like a sum up of like how he probably felt in general sure well um to get back to to the new book uh one of the things that uh you know fascinates me is the access that you have, or at least at least partial access to your mother's journals, which detail your sleep uh, patterns as a as a small child? I mean, mm-hmm. like how how in depth are those journals? Like, did you get to just sit there and reread, you know, read through all of them as as part of your research process? Uh, I didn't I didn't want to get too deep into it because I didn't want to I didn't want to spend too much time on the actual child part. I don't know. It, it seemed like dangerous territory when you're when you're talking about um, your childhood and like how that affected your personality or something like that. I didn't want to go too much into it, but my mom, I mean, my mom is like an obsessive, um, chronicler of sorts. And like, like she just has every night she writes pages and pages in this journal. And yeah, it goes back to, I think the the stuff that I used was in a baby book where she was like recording each day with me and what happened. And, uh, yeah, a lot of it kept referring to my sleep problems and stuff. And so, um, yeah, I, I read through a bunch of that as much as I could, as I felt would be beneficial, but, um, yeah, it, it was nice to have, I guess that's another product of, or an example of why I end up thinking too much. Cause it, it definitely seems to come from my mom. She's a, she, she dotes on everything like that, but in a, in the most well meaning way, but it, it, at sometimes it tends to like cause a feedback on itself that could drive a person crazy, you know? Sure. Well, no, I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, you got the writing bug from your mom if she was doing all that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, just to like, I mean, just to interject, like I'm thinking back to my own childhood, my mom was not like, you know, not a, a journal keeper like that, but my earliest memory, like, and it's a very vivid memory is of a nightmare. Uh, I remember uh-huh. I was, I was being chased by the incredible Hulk and I, he was going to, and he was going to cap or he captured me. And then I was in a cage and there were witches that were going to cook me in a pot. And then, and then I, yeah. And then I remember my mother and I, like the next part of the memory, it's a little bit disjointed was my mom and I in a yellow kitchen. We lived outside of San Francisco at this point back in the seventies. And, uh, we were in this yellow kitchen and my mom made me a sandwich. That's, that's my earliest memory. Yeah, Sandwich was going to be very important. Yeah, no, I mean it was comforting. It was like you know, it was like the the punctuation marked it because it was a terrifying dream. I can only imagine, you know, like that it stuck with me all these years when I have such a shoddy memory, uh, right? You know, but it's like my first memory is of a of a dream. Uh, that, yeah, that that's funny. I think that mine probably is too. I don't I I don't know why. Like, I guess because dreams can scare you more than when you're a child. Um, more than anything else, because you, you're kind of protected from a lot of things that would be really terrifying. Um, and dreams are the first thing where you're like up against an unknown thing uh, without knowing where you're, how you're going to get out of it. So that makes sense to me that it would be the most primal um, rem- remembrance, especially in the middle of like all this other stuff that you don't remember. It's kind of funny. Yeah. It's an, a supposedly unreal thing. Well, and then like there, there was a quote, and I'm, I'm forgetting who who it was from maybe you said it or maybe it was like you were quoting Derrida or someone but it was like talking about how like the 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 real fear in that like in between sleep and awake state where those dreams are really vivid like just the other night I had this dream where like I came home 
and my wife was on the couch, but like my wife was like high school age and she was with like a high school boyfriend and they were just like <laughs> casually hanging out on the couch, making out. And I was like so <laughs> upset and she was wow. like, yeah, she was just like yawning. She was like, Hey, you know, and I was like, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm with my boy. And she was like, I'm with my boyfriend. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, no, but, it, but I just remember waking up and I immediately rolled over and I told her and, you know, it was like this big funny thing, but. Um, you know, th- there's like a, a vis, like a really visceral fear feeling that like, I don't usually feel in my, uh, waking state. Yeah. And especially when it, when it seems to mirror like real, like the, the, the really messed up stuff that that's really surreal or something can be, you'll remember that for a little while, but I think the ones that feel like things that actually could happen in your, in your life are the ones that, that really stick with you like that. Um, for some reason, like if a lot of dreams, I, I seem to have, or as a child, I had a lot of dreams where I was in my house and, it, and, and when you can't tell, when you can't tell whether you're sleeping or not and, that, and you're affected by these things that so when you wake up, you're like, Oh, that was a dream, but it still seems like something that actually happened to you. Like I could, I could understand you being mad at your wife after that, even still like you did do that to me. You know? <laughs> right. I was like, well, what's going on? Is there something you need to tell me? You know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, to, to kind of uh, transition a little bit, I'm curious because, you know, prior to this book, you've written uh, and published fiction. And I'm curious to know uh, about your experience of writing nonfiction versus the experience of writing fiction. Like, you know, what was that like? Man, it was a blast. It was really fun. Um, cause I, I guess, uh, I've been writing fiction so long and, and like not really ever trying to, I'd never really thought about breaking out of that besides like blogging or whatever. And so when I was given that opportunity, it was like, I was kind of up against the wall. I was, I mean, like I write pretty much, I've been writing every, pretty much every day. So it was like, Oh, I, well, I finished this novel. I guess I'm going to start another one. And so I have something to do, you know, and that was, it's good. It's good to have that continual feed, but it was also like I was reaching a point where I was like, if I don't, I gotta, I gotta do something that changes my approach. And so this was a a great way to like, to to totally reinvent or my the the way I work on the page. Anyway, I mean, I I still sat down every day and and wrote a lot every day, but it was also too that um, it was kind of a thing that I'd had in me for a long time that was ready to get out. So I, I, I kind of went into it full on and it was, um, it just felt way more exciting to have, to, to have these, like, I'm not just charged with the idea that I have to make up these stories that, that's, that I completely control. Like it was nice to have something that actually called, kept me, um, on, on a certain level of, uh, of reality of some sort, even if it's totally skewed in certain moments. Um, yeah, it was nice to have facts to play with and like certain set pieces of memory that I knew I wanted in there. Like it was almost like someone had done an outline for me. Um, so it, it was a real, it was really liberating and, and fun, um, to, to challenge myself, I guess, in that way. And, and, uh, feel like I was working with terrain that like, I, I feel like nonfiction could has a lot more space than maybe fiction does at this point to like really do different things with ways of presenting information. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, like there's a couple of thoughts that I had, like reading, uh, nothing is that, you know, okay, so this is nonfiction. This is Blake writing nonfiction, but it definitely felt totally related, uh, to your fiction. And it also felt related 
maybe even more strongly to me anyway, to uh, your internet writing and your internet presence or whatever you want to call it. Like one of the things that uh, sleep disorders and a book like this, uh, which is about sleep disorders and insomnia, but it, it seems to be about more. And one of the things that kept kind of ringing out in my mind is the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it feels like in your work, uh, and I mean, it's, it's like the, it's like the elephant in the room. Like if you, if you go back to, you know, uh, literary predecessors, like you have guys like David Foster Wallace and Don DeLillo, uh, as examples of writer and, um, uh, Thomas Pynchon writers who deal with television in their work, yeah. you know, television's effect on fiction. I feel like, mm -hmm. you know, the internet is sort of now you know, the, the thing, you know, like the, it's the central thing in so many people's lives. It's the, it's the flickering screen that most of us sit in front of more often yeah. than we sit in front of our televisions and it's powerful and, and it contains so much. It's, it's mind blowing. It's infinite. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, I definitely spend more time with the internet than any person and I wake up and go to sleep next to my computer. So it definitely feels like a, a life, partner of some sense. And it also feels like to me, um, like people, I, I'm, I've started to think of it not as, uh, as a contained place, but as like another part of the world. It's like, it's becoming like nature to me, you know, um, which, and, and you can't really, you can't get away from it. Like, and, and there's not really any reason to, like, I'm always surprised or not surprised, but I, I think it's a real dividing line when you see people like Franzen or, other people saying, you know, the number one rule of, of that writers should have is write on a computer that's not on the internet, which to me, I can't, I can't, like, I cannot, if I ever am on a computer that's not on the internet, all I'm thinking about is like internet. It, it just becomes, it becomes exactly like you said, the elephant in the room. And so like, it's like I, I've had my arms tied behind me or something or like, um, I don't know. It, to me, it's a big fund of, of continually refreshing, like, a, uh, the inputs that are going into the work. So like I, I tend to write in bursts and fragments and, and like, I like the fact that I can write a sentence or a paragraph and then stop and look at something and like have my brain wash out for a second and get off of, um, get off of where I was and then come back and like approach the next sentence or paragraph as if, um, I've, I've had a different change of energy, uh, which should flow definitely and shouldn't always be staccato, but, um, you, I don't know. I like big, big masses and then, and then like breaks in between. So for me, it's a big tool that helps me keep writing, um, keep myself interested and not like, you know, slaving over something. Um, no, I, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I work, I like short, I like reading short bursts. I like writing short bursts. Uh, yeah. you know, my, my, the novel that I wrote, like I researched a lot of the, the nonfiction interludes, you know, using the internet. I mean, you must've been using the internet to research nothing, right? Right. Oh yeah, totally. I was just dragging stuff out of all over the place and like plugging it in as if it were part of it, you know, it's like, um, it's like collage art. Totally, totally. Um, and it should be that way. You know, I think like to, to ignore it or pretend it's not there and not part of the culture, like they say that like referring to the internet dates you, but I think it dates you just as bad to to pretend like it's not there. Um, and, and you're losing, you're losing a, a huge resource of just like, yeah, maybe the information's incorrect, but it's also the information that is feeding everyone. So like, why, why is it not 
valuable to um, interact with that web of stuff. And like, it can get distracting. Sure. Like people like being on Gmail all the time and, and even invisible people will know you're still there and like people are IMing you, but then like, you steal stuff those people say, or they refer you somewhere that you see a picture of something and then that changes the way you're thinking for a moment, even if you don't refer to the picture. I don't know. I like I like the idea that I'm being fed a big vat of shit that I then filter however I do as a person. You know, like I, I feel like as an author I'm I, I feel more like a filter than like a than an author, really. Yeah. Um I, and that's what's interesting about people is their personality and what they what they what they focus on and what they draw out of that big vat. So, well, and I'm also, I mean, I'm also like endlessly fascinated with how people present online. It's impossible not to, you know, you know, you're a perfect example. Most of the writers that I talk with on this show are good examples where, uh, you know, I've read the work or some of the work and I also am aware of the internet presence, whether it's like, you know, mm-hmm. as, as you described them, like pictures of heads, <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's just like these heads on my screen or it's, you know, particular writing, like, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about you, just to give an example, is the way that you tweet okay. <laughs> and like people tweet in their own way. And, uh, you know, your tweets uh, tend to be, uh, what's the word, you know, what would be the word? Just hard to, sometimes hard to decipher a little bit elliptical, you know? Yeah. And so I'll give Absurd you, or something. yeah, I'll give, I'll give listeners a couple examples of your tweets. Okay. Here's one <laughs> Su- quote, sudden intense urge to somehow father 80 babies in next 30 days so that by next Halloween, I can build a baby based replica of the moon End quote. <laughs> and then here's, an, here's, an, here's another tweet quote. My dream job is to sit outside Costco at a folding table with a cantaloupe and a baby and have consumers fill out forms explaining which is which end quote. So these, yeah. these, I mean, they're funny, they're absurd, they're abstract and they seem to sort of beg or not beg, but it, it seems like it, they make you think that they're, they're odd and they, um, send strange images into my mind and they make me, there feels like there's something deeper going on there, but at the same time, maybe not. I don't know. Like, how do you, do, do, you know, decide what to tweet? Yeah, I don't know. To me, like Twitter, uh, Twitter is the place I go to get away from like the Facebook feed of like, here's my link, here's my crap I made, here's here's this and that. Like, I like Twitter as a as a resource for ideas and like an and, and I use it as an out outlet of like getting. I don't know. Anytime I, I, I'll, those thoughts, the recurring thought thing, like a good way to get that thought out of your head, the one that you can't get out of you any other way is to like just shit it out into something. So like to me, Twitter is a great place to like dump off a lot of this psychic bullshit, you know? Um, but also not in a like stream of stream of consciousness, like, cause I also think it's meant to entertain and and or provoke in any kind of way you know like i don't think it should just be like the first thing that comes to your mind i actually often think a lot about them or it it depends but i don't know i I wish i i like it as a as a like as a as as the most concentrated place to get like fun ideas or like uh just spew off in a in a very particular kind of way well it's sort of poetic and like I think that there, and this is like a related to it, you know, there are decisions that have to be made. It's, you know, let's say, you know, we're writers and we're artists mm-hmm. and we're presenting our work 
or some version of it, and we're presenting ourselves online, and inevitably some thought goes into it, right? I mean, yeah. it just it, it, it's part of the deal. And so I'm always sort of fascinated. Like I sit around going, like, how am I presenting? Or like, what do people think? Or what's this, you know, how much? And, but then at the same time, I start to get pissed off because I'm like, I'm sitting around obsessing about how people are going to think about a fucking tweet. And it's like, I know, I know. you know, and it becomes this sort of bre- like it comes this like I'm spinning my wheels. And uh, I feel like some writers are really good at it. Some writers like present with like very little guile and it's like charming. And then yeah. other, other writers, it's maybe not as charming. And then some writers, it's like it's hard to decipher, but yet it's fascinating. And, you know, like, how do you go about that? Like, do you sit around thinking about this stuff? Yeah, man, I, I, sometimes I, I'm just sitting, I realize I'm sitting around trying to think of a way to say something in 140 characters, which that's fucking sad, sort of, <laughs> but, but it's also like, it's, I don't know, it's like a, it's a weird trade off of like, it's, it's, it's renovating your mind a little bit, but it's also giving you this immediate bounce back of, of, um, of report. And then, um, yeah, you start to you start to build this persona and those decisions that you make end up being the way people see I mean like most people you know online or you're never going to meet or even talk to you on the phone, you know, like most of the time they're just going to have that vision of you and for me it often ends up being that people think I'm fucked up or like an asshole or something but um and I'm fine with that. Like I think it's I think it's funny to to like manipulate that um but it also has to come from something kind of legitimate because if you, like you said, you can tell when the person's trying too hard or, or, or they're like posturing in a certain way, trying to get you to react a certain way. It should be honest, but also concerted in, in a kind of, I don't know, some kind of way. I don't know. Yeah. And no, I say, I feel like I sometimes try too hard. Cause like my whole Twitter thing is that like, okay, I've kind of made this rule for myself where it's like, it's got to be funny. If I'm going to make people right. read a tweet, it's got to be funny. And so then yeah. I'll sit around obsessing about this, like trying to make some sort of Twitter joke. And then I'll put one up and it won't get any like retweets or like comments. And I'll be like, fuck, my joke died. It just totally yeah. bombed. And then it's like this, do you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, yeah. maybe it's a better way to go about it to like be a little bit more abstract and just like confuse people a little bit more instead of trying to go for like the one liner. I don't know. Right. No, I mean, like I do that too, though. Like you'll, you'll put it up and you'll be like, I, there's almost like a, you can almost tell like in the five seconds after you press publish, like you look at it, it like changes the way you think about what you just said. You're like, now people are looking at it. And so like, I do that all the time. Like I'll press publish and I'll immediately know like, fuck, I should not have done that. And like, (laughs) I think that's true. I do that with blogging all the time. I'm always, I'll like sit there and just like, I, I always make sure I do things when I have enough time that I can sit there and delete it in case because I do feel guilty about that kind of shit if it's stupid and like yeah, I, and I, that's scary I, I, to have to have that kind of report which is like I really have to sit here and think like is this is that good like uh, it's sad. it's fucked up but it's also kind of I, I don't know it's kind of necessary for for it to not be too watery. Well, and it's totally normal, you know. I think yeah. it's, I think it's I think what we're talking about. I have to imagine we're not the only ones, right? Right. No. Uh, well, like one the person that I guess got me into Twitter sort of was Tao Lin, and like I think he is pretty masterful of all kinds of internet approaches. Um, well, I mean, he pisses off a lot of people, but he also I mean, he, I think he's always one step ahead of like what's interesting, and so like I love I love a lot of his his tweets and I, what he did, which has 
I, I keep thinking about this, and it scares me that that's an idea. But he has Tao Lin, and he has Tao Lin unedited, and so there's like the the tweets that are very specifically honed, and then there's like his unedited feed, which is like more random thoughts. But that's just as interesting to read. I mean, when someone someone's thoughts coming out in that way are just as interesting when they're unedited. But it's it's interesting to see what he puts on the real one that has like 7,000 followers and he, what he puts on the unedited one that has like 500 followers. And like, I always think like, man, I should start an unedited one so I could think less. But then I think you'd think more because now you have two options, oh, like which is this and like, oh, well now I can, you know, that's just fucking, and then you'll end up with three and four and like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, no, I just, I can barely, I mean, that's the other question is like, I can barely tweet uh, at all like I, I just you know it's very hard for me to, to keep up with it all and like to constantly be tweeting some, some people it's like this effortless feed of stuff you know and like yeah how, how often are you tweeting do you have like a, a quota for yourself or is it just sort of when it happens it happens no yeah just when it happens i don't like those i don't like the the feeds where it just goes on and on forever i think like you need to like it's like taking up too much time at the at the front of the line at wendy's or something like like, don't, I understand it's fun for you to, like, at your friends and, like, chat chat around and stuff, but it's also, like, I don't know. I only follow people that only, that that I think are, like, working to sort of entertain me and not over overbearing that task. But then if it's, sometimes it's funny to watch it slide, just, like, become an onslaught. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Um, but all of this stuff is, I mean, this is one website out of however many websites there are that, like, um, it occupies a part of your brain. Like when you're not, even when you're not in front of the computer, you might think like, should I tweet that? Should I, <laughs> yes. should I do this? You know, like yeah. it's all those decisions just keep haunting you. So. Well, no. And I think like to go back to what you're talking about with Tao Lin, um, I'm, I'm forever, he's fascinating and I'm fascinated by why he's fascinating. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah. I think a lot of people are that way, but one of the things that's always struck me about him is how funny he is and like subversive, yeah, yeah. subversively funny. And then I read about people being pissed off by him and I don't understand it. I, I've never understood like why that would generate anger. It's like to me, if you read his stuff or you do uh, any kind of investigation into him, he, he's like really serious about his work and he, he works his, you know, he works really hard and he produces interesting books or at least to me. And yeah. he's got like this deadpan sense of humor, and he also has uh, an understanding of, you know, like you were saying, like there's sort of like this one step ahead thing going on with his understanding <laughs> of the internet and how to uh, how to use it. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, it seems. Yeah, like it totally makes sense. Like I think I think that that very thing you described is why people why he makes people mad. Like I remember the first time I read something by him, it was like. 2006 or something and he had this he didn't have any books and people I, I mean I'd never heard of him before he had this little post on I think it was Tyndall D. Boz magazine or something like that and it was a story called The Walking Wall and I read it and it was so effortless it seems so effortless like that's one of the things he's good at is making it seem effortless when really it's like super meticulous it looks really easy to write but it's like try writing it and look at his imitators and you can see like, it's not as easy as it looks. And part of, part of his genius is making it look like that. But so I read this piece and I was immediately like, fuck this dude. Like, God, this is like, what is this? You know? And then, so I went to his blog from that and started reading his other, like he had this piece where he, he called Lydia Davis's office and it was just him talking about calling Lydia Davis's office. And he had like some words were in, 
and some words were in all caps and some were normal. And it was like, why is he doing that? You know? And like, I got, I got furious at first, but then I, uh, after I started reading it and I, uh, I, I think I was mad because he had like found this thing that seemed so apt. Um, and, and, and soon after that, I, I realized that and, and, and his persona like explained that. But I think the immediate reaction that people have to something like him is, uh, I don't fully understand this. So it must be bullshit. So, because it doesn't, it doesn't like work with my understanding of things. So must be bullshit. And then a lot of people never get beyond that. They're just like, fuck this, you know, like, I don't like this. And this isn't, this isn't what literature is supposed to be, or this isn't what, I like so. Yeah, but the, see, the I thing think is, that's where it comes. Yeah, but I mean, I think the thing is, is that there are a lot of people who could write stuff that like people could read and not quite understand, but it wouldn't. Yeah. it wouldn't generate that sort of emotional response. Like it's working on some level that they do understand. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Exactly. It's got to totally. be. It's got to be provoking on some sort of level that that is discernible, or at least something they can feel. You know, and it. Uh, you know, if it, if it was just as easy as writing stuff that people didn't understand, then you know it, it would be a different ball game. But yeah, they, they do understand it. They just don't know why they understand it. So right. and they don't want it to be. They don't want it to be understandable. They want it to be gibberish so they can write it off. But it's not gibberish. It's very. It seems very clear to me. I mean, the sentences are all very. I mean, he has different styles, but like, I don't know. Like, it seems pretty damn clear. You know. Yeah. So fascinating. So. Um, to get back to you and, uh, your work, like one of the questions that I have for you, uh, is regarding music and how music relates to your work. Do you, I mean, do you use music a lot as a writer? I mean, how do you, how do you feel about it? I mean, I like my favorite place to write inside is silence, but it's pretty much impossible. It seems like to get real silence for very long. So, um, I'll play, I, I can't really have words in music cause I just, it, it's like the same thing as when I'm going to sleep. Like if there's words in music, I'm going to listen to every word that without even meaning to. So right. I like like noisy soundscape shit or like things that, that make enough noise to cover over everything else. Um, and, but also don't take me too far out of the, the what's in my head. So, uh, at least for writing. Anyway, um, does the, I mean, if it's like ambient music, does the music like are you searching for ambient music that might have uh, like a tonal similarity to what you're writing? Maybe, yeah, or just anything that like anything that sounds like it. The, 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 it sounds like it's not there, but it's it's so there that it's there, or something like that. Like I can, it's it's loud enough and heavy enough and 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 in my face enough that I can pretend like it's just part of where I am or something. Yeah, it becomes part of the room. Yeah, yeah. Because so otherwise, you, it's like you're de- you're battling with it if it's if it's too if it has a different kind of feel. At least for me, like if a if a song with words and like a like a song I know comes on, I'm just my brain just like automatically welds to that. So yeah, no, I, it destroys me. I can't do anything with words. No, no singing. Like, not even like there, there occasionally there'll be like a Brian Eno album or something. And there'll be like one song where there's like some, you know, child's voice in the background saying like two words and it, that'll even, yeah. even that'll screw me up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you know, where do you work? You know, you talk about silence and music. Like, are you working at home mostly creatively or do you, are you a, cafe writer or like a library person or does it vary? No, I can't, I can't really write at home because I always, I feel like, like I live in a studio. So it's like my bed's right there. And like, 
I sleep there. I can't just like roll out of bed and start typing. That makes me feel like claustrophobic or something. So lately I've been like for the last couple of years, I've been writing, my parents live like 30 minutes North of Atlanta and I, my dad kind of needs uh, medical attention and stuff. So I kind of go up there to help my mom and be around so she can do stuff. But I also have a room um, there that was the room I grew up in. So I like write there. Um, that's that's what I've been doing. That's going to be kind of interesting, like writing in your childhood bedroom. Yeah, yeah. I, this this whole nonfiction book was the first time I wrote. Like, I, I think that it was the room I first masturbated in, um, <laughs> which which was kind of weird. Like, there was definitely this psychic uh, feeling. Of, I mean, the room's not mine anymore, and it's like painted over. But it's like I've done a lot of weird shit in this room, and like I've done some uh, great creative work in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Um, so yeah, that that had to be. I, I probably would have written the book totally different if I was sitting in like Starbucks or something. Well, yeah, and then like, what about uh, you know, you mentioned that your father is in ill health. Like, I think like I read and uh, you know, he's got uh, dementia. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, I mean, that's obviously got to color a lot of your experience as well. That's pretty. My grandmother had dementia, so I mean, I, I'm a little bit familiar with that. That's a pretty heavy thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying and interesting at the same time. Like I've kind of gotten used to the fact that he doesn't know who I am and I'm more interested in like seeing what he does remember and like talking to him and see what, what comes out of him that is from whatever's in him now. It's definitely mostly gibberish, but it's kind of interesting to watch, um, uh, outside of an emotional level, just like watching him deal with the world. And, and it seems very similar to, how I would feel when I hadn't slept in a long time. It, uh, that that those two states, like I think, deep insomnia puts you in a state of dementia. Um, so it's almost like he's a walking insomniac around the house. Um, yeah, that makes so that, sense. Yeah. Well, and then like um, you know, just to jump in because like there was there is one like fact or factoid that really strikes me is that you once had a 129 hour bout with insomnia. Like that's your record, correct? Yeah, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, that was the longest. Your, your high water mark. So, like, tell. I mean, I think I'm sure our listeners want to know. I know I want to know. Like, what happens? What happened to you when you're in like hour 129? You know what I'm saying? Like, you you've gone 129 hours without sleep. Can you encapsulate that process? Yeah. Well, it was weird because I had mono at the time, um, which you're supposed to sleep through mono, right? Like. That's the whole point. That's what happens when you get monitored. You sleep 14 hours a day. But I, for some reason, that triggered. I don't know if mono had something to do with why it happened. But I, yeah, I, and that's also why I know, like, I, why I know how long it was because it started related to a doctor's visit. But, um, yeah, um, I don't know. I was like, I laid in bed and I remember, like, it, I would just sit there and stare kind of at, whatever was there and I'd get up and walk around the house and like uh, the longer I was awake, the more it seemed like the house was bigger and it was like hard to um, like, it was hard to know. It was almost like this house I'd been in all my life was starting to change or something. Like I would walk down the hall and the hall seemed much longer than it used to be. And like, like I was seeing, I started hallucinating and like seeing heads and like head, like things were colors were coming out of the wall sort of. And so it, uh, uh, as, as the, the deeper you got in, the more it became like a like a childish state. Where I, was, I, I just remember, like for one, at one point, I just was standing in the hall, like just crying because I couldn't think of what to do beyond like 
there's nothing to do. Like if you can't go to sleep and you're in this, like if you, and you're sick and you don't, and all you really want to do is go to sleep. Like if, there's no other, there's no replacement for sleep. There's nothing you can, you can take meds if that might put you under, but like whatever meds I was on at that time didn't, weren't doing it. And like, it's just no exit. So that, that makes everything seem kind of like a, a prison or a place that you're stuck in. And then at a certain point you can't even tell anymore. Like, I don't remember really what happened. I remember it was New Year's Eve and like, I had a girlfriend at the time and she, I remember talking to her on the phone, but it seemed like she was in Germany or something. Like she was just like trying to talk to me, but I couldn't really understand what she was talking about. And I just like, I remember hearing her voice on the phone, but I don't remember what happened before or after that. And I don't really, it's all just this big maze of shit that eventually some, for some reason I finally passed out in, but, um, yeah, it just like changes it changes the way you see see shapes and and distance and like time feels different, colors feel different. It's almost like I, I haven't done drugs, but I I imagine it's kind of similar to a drug state. Like you've never done drugs at all? Not I mean I drink, but I don't I haven't smoked weed. I don't really like I don't really do any of that stuff. Well, um, and I'm just curious why. I mean, like you just never had the opportunity or never interested you? No, yeah, well, I didn't drink even until I was 26, um, 32 now. Um, for for some reason, when I was a kid, I, I like, I decided that it was wrong or that I didn't like it, um, and I just stuck to that. And then it became kind of like, I am, I was, I, I, I never called myself straight edge, but I was like, I was pretty rigorous in that, and like, I was rude to people that were drinking around me, and like, um. I don't know. It became like my reputation. So all, then all my friends were like, Hey dude, we'll do anything to make you drink. Like I think at one point all my friends took up like a $500 collection where <laughs> they were going to give me 500 bucks if I'd get drunk. And I was like, fuck you guys, you know, this bullshit. Fuck you. <laughs> now I'm like, God damn. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think some of it, I think I often think that it relates to my mom in some way. Like I was, as a kid, I was always afraid that I was going to do something that disappointed her. And like, I know that's why I didn't drink in high school because I was, I definitely wasn't not there. I was, I hung out with like rude kids. I, a lot of my friends were getting in trouble all the time and there was, it was around. I just, some kind of thing married me to the idea that I shouldn't do it. And I wrote it for a long time. So yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I mean, I always saw, I always say, cause I, you know, I did experiment when I was like 19, 18, 19, yeah. especially kind of the normal time to do that stuff. But you know, in the aftermath of all that, I, I like have often joked that like maybe the, I, the the right thing to do would be like to do all your drugs when you're like elderly, you know, <laughs> like wait till the end, you know, and then, yeah, I know, mean, you've accrued some, wisdom. that's a great idea. Maybe I'll save that. I'll turn 70 and like start buying mushrooms and stuff. But... Yeah, go to burning <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so now do you, uh, like with regard to like sleep management and just like creative, uh, energy management and stuff like i think i read somewhere that you're a runner is this true that's true yeah so you're like a dedicated runner and like i i've had conversations with other writers about exercise because i'm like one of those people like i have to exercise uh i just you run every day nah, i hike or i'll go to the gym or i'll do so i just have to do something like i have to right i have to break a sweat essentially every day uh, right, or, exactly. I, or I have trouble sleeping. Like I go through like cyclical bouts of uh, insomnia, and exercise I find like helps. Like if I'm tired, I'm tired. Like if I'm physically tired, it's easier to sleep. And then I also feel right. like I feel like there's like a mood regulation component to exercise that doesn't get 
talked about enough. Like it's like a release of uh, what is it? Dopamine or serotonin or, you know, some sort of yeah. brain chemical that I think it's, it's regulatory, right? I mean, is that kind of part of why you do it or is it totally unrelated? To- totally related. I had a section in the book about running that I think I couldn't get it right. So I took it out, but um, yeah, I run pretty much every day. Like if I skip a day now, I feel like my, I just feel like total shit. I feel like I've gained 15 pounds or something. Um, and it's totally out of, out of a, like, like I said, I like, I like silence the best. And I feel like when you go to run, like everything else kind of goes away. Like whatever you were thinking about, whatever is around you, it all is like, it's all just forward motion at that moment. So like it's, yeah, that the sweating is, it's huge. Like that, that feeling, even if I just like walk around, if I don't break a sweat, I still feel like shit. Like I, for some reason I need that liquid come out of my body, you know? Yeah. What is um, that? And like, and the feeling of like, I just feel like shit if I don't do it, like what, it's like an obsession, you know? It's horrible, man. It's hard to travel. Like really like often when I go on the road or on a trip anywhere, like when I wake up, the first thing I want, um, I'm thinking is like, when and where and how am I going to sweat? Like, when am I going to make, when am I going to get time to run? And it, it kind of is, it's kind of crippling in the same way of like, if you're obsessed with that. And for me, I think it comes from the fact that I was, I was a fat kid in, in high school and stuff like, and and I lost a bunch of weight. And then now like all I'm thinking about, like I've, I've met, I've stayed the same weight for like, you know, 15 years at this point, but it's still like always on my mind, you know, like that could come back and like, I have to, stay on my on my regiment well no, and so how fat were i mean when you were like a big obese kid is that i didn't realize this yeah i mean yeah yeah i weighed i weighed like 260 when i was in like eighth or ninth grade holy shit and so then what, yeah i was what, a big old boy what flipped i mean were you just eating the wrong th- i mean obviously you're eating the wrong things and not exercising is that basically it or yeah i mean i was yeah i was overeating like i would i would eat a, i would eat to go to sleep and uh on some level like i would eat a shitload so that i would like if you, you know, when you eat a lot, you want to go to sleep and that would work. So I was doing that. And then I didn't really, I didn't really exercise, even change my exercising routine. When I lost the weight, I lost 80 pounds in like four or five months between 10th and 11th grade, all from, I basically starved myself. Um, I would only eat 300 calories a day and I was dead fucking serious about it. Like you couldn't, there's no way you could make me not do that. And then, so I got down to like 175 and I was like, uh, I started eating a little bit more normal, but then that's when I started like for a long time, I would, I kept my diet really small, but then I, as an adult, I eat what I want. So in order to eat what I want and enjoy eating and drinking, uh, you have to run, you know, like you got to sweat it off. You got to burn. You got to burn. Yeah. But I'm like, did you ever, I mean, are you into like, uh, I don't know. I don't want to get, get off too far into like food science, but like, I'm, I always like think about like. I think about my body as like some sort of like vehicle or something. And I think of food as like fuel and it's like, what am yeah. I, what am I putting in? Like, what, what is this stuff? Like, what is food? I, I will like look at like a package and just like read the ingredients and be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating to me. And then like, I also like, I think like, you know, I think it's healthy. I, I kind of like want to put good stuff inside of my body. Like, that's, right. I mean, it affects you mentally. I mean, if you, you, you know, you're a writer, you're, you, if you feel like shit, you're going to, you're not going to, write very well a lot of the time. I mean, it might help you in some ways, but I think like it all is affecting your brain and you, and your fit and you're, you're sitting in your body while you're doing your work. So like, exactly. If you can make yourself feel better, then you're going to work better probably. Yeah. That's, um, that's what I think too. And like, I read like every time I read something like this, it like comforts me in some way, but like 
I was reading about uh, Henry David Thoreau, and he used to walk four miles, like, I want to say four hours a day. Not four miles, like four hours a day he would just stroll. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, that sort of makes sense to me. I mean, it's, it seems kind of like a luxury in a way uh, to have that. Kind yeah, total luxury. To have that kind of time, but uh, I think that's something that might be uh, a common thread among a lot of writers, like the need. And I think because the the work itself is so sedentary and you sort of have to sit in your chair, like you have to, you know, I remember reading about Don DeLillo. I think he's a jogger too. And like he works, the, yeah. he works the morning and then he goes and like runs, uh, you know, several miles and then he comes back and can work again in the evening, you know, but you need something to break it up. Otherwise you just start to feel stale. Yeah, I mean, you can you can sit at a desk and like for me, I, whenever I reach like a problem in, in something I'm working on, I'm like, how am I gonna how am I gonna make this work? Like, the longer you sit there in front of it trying to fuck with it, the worse it's gonna get. Like, yeah. get up and leave it and not think about it, and then your brain kind of unconsciously does the work and it like appears to you all of a sudden. Yeah. So, how often do you work? Are you an, you're an everyday writer? You mentioned earlier. I, I have been for a long time. I've kind of been relaxing a little bit the last few months just because I think I hit a wall. But, um, yeah, pretty much, I mean, I, I'm self-employed and, and the amount of work, the amount of time that I have to, to write is pretty large. So I do it almost out of guilt sometimes, but also because like I'm addicted to, it's like the same thing as running, writing seem the same. Like I have to do it every day to exercise myself or, or I don't. Or I feel wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you say you're self-employed? You like, and I you write for a gambling site? Is that correct, or is that not happening anymore? I do it sometimes now. I don't do it as much as I used to, but um, yeah, that was my main job for like the last four years. I kind of I realized I had written two million words about poker, so <laughs> literally, and I was like, I think that might be the end of my poker writing. I just that's uh, uh, that's too much. And I was just repeating myself and it was kind of annoying. So I still do it sometimes, but I, yeah, I still freelance. Like I work for a few different freelance places and I'm just, um, yeah, it takes up very little of my time to bust out articles for the internet. Like that's another internet keeping me alive type thing. Um, well, and then you're doing it, you're doing HTML giant too. I mean, you're running that site and how much time does that take you? As much as I want it to, it's almost like the contributors we have are all pretty, you know, they're all responsible for their own stuff and I, they all know how to do what they do. So I, I don't really like govern that editorially. Everyone I trust to like post things that I think are interesting. So, um, I don't have to like pay attention to it, but I mean, I, I, I do edit what I see wrong and like a lot of it's formatting editing or like I, you know, solicit stuff and, and do my own posts. But it, I mean, I could, I could not look at it for a couple of weeks and it would probably be fine. Um, it's just on auto. Yeah. That's sort of nice. Yeah. It's great. It's, it, it, I like that. Like for me, that's the only way it could work. I like, I don't, I like the fact that people can write about whatever they want instead of like pitching me ideas because for me, like, I, I've never been a good group writer, and like if if I have to pitch someone ideas, the way the idea, the nature of the ideas changes because you have to convince someone of it that it's worthwhile. Whereas like if no one, if you know no one's looking, then you can kind of say anything you want, and that that's always the way I've worked best. So yeah. Um, well, what is? I mean, you you you've published several books now. Like, what do you like going forward? Do you have an idea of what you want this to become, or are you just like I like to write. I'm going to keep making books. Hopefully, people publish them or yeah, uh, I, I'm going to keep writing. I mean, like I already have two, two more novels that I've finished. Uh, I mean, 
the these two books were i mean the novel that that came out earlier this year was a few years old and i've written a few since then so uh yeah i, t- I tend to write pretty fast and i and I, I revise hard but i like to get a draft down um and so i have working drafts of two other things and i i'm hoping that i'll be able to keep putting them out and i and stay i'll probably always freelance and maybe one day i'll teach but i feel like um, my main purpose or what I want to do is to write. So I don't see that changing as much as sometimes I beat myself up about sitting in front of the desk, like fantasizing all day. But well, do, you, do, you think, um, do you think it's, I mean, this is a question that, that vexes me now that I have a kid and uh, especially, you know, like a family to support and whatnot. But like, do you look at writing like this is the way I'm going to make my living or is this just something like if I can make a living from it, great, but I'm going to do it because I love to do it and I'll build my life around it because it's my passion. Yeah. I mean, the, for me, money has always been a bonus. Like I've been, I've done definitely more, I've made more than I re- thought I ever would. Um, but if, if it, the next thing that I want to do couldn't come out where I was getting paid, I would still do it. Like I, it is definitely an obsession and a thing that I just feel compelled to do. And money isn't, uh, I've always been able to make enough money to live. And I, you know, I'm not married, don't have kids. Don't think I plan on it. Um, so, I live pretty cheaply, uh, and, and it's pretty easy to be able to sustain myself without worrying about that at all. And yeah, I think it, I think I'll continue unless I just like reached into my wall and I'm like, fuck this. But I, and I think that every day, but I, <laughs> I never actually do it. So, yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, you, it sounds like you're pretty prolific and you don't have that much trouble writing i mean you know like how did you do i guess you just do a ton of reading and that you feed your head that way and that keeps it going you feel like that's it feels like they have a very reciprocal relationship like the the amount that you're reading and the quality of what you're reading obviously would have a direct impact on how much and how well you're writing yeah man definitely uh uh, yeah the reading is very important i think everything's very important like anything that you just being alive is a continual feed of like not even in a like I'm going to write about my day, but just like seeing stuff, like I feel like there's so much stuff giving energy for, for of creative, creative energy. And I, and I don't even really sit, sit around and think about ideas. It's just like, it starts often for me with a sound or like a, an image and, and that kind of generate the next thing generates the next one without like for, for a draft, I feel like I, I write more out like off my gut. And then when I'm revising, I'm, I'm revising as a reader rather than as a writer and like making connections of stuff that I see based on the foundation that's already there. So, well, so, um, okay. so let me ask you here, cause this is an interesting, this is, this is interesting to me is that, you know, you have to be able to turn off your critical mind in order to get that draft down at least to an extent. Yeah. But one of the, totally. thing, one of the, one of the things that I think is, it starts to get into a bit of gray area is where, you know, if you're a writer who likes to get a draft down and you like to get that first draft down with as little of your critical mind involved as possible, uh, you know, it's one thing to just sit down and write what, you know, is commonly referred to as like the shitty first draft. But I, yeah. I, I also think that like, you know, you, every time you sit down, you want to do your best, even if you're writing without your critical mind. Do you, see, yeah. do you see what I'm driving at? Like, how do you, do you feel like there's some sort of equilibrium that you're reaching in between like no critical mind and like your full attention? Because if you have, yeah. if you have no critical mind, but you're writing with like half attention or, you know, you're just being sloppy because you're lazy. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, the, there's a definite equilibrium. And I think that like, 
it's 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 incorrect to just say just like I was told that a lot in in, in, in when I was getting my MFA like just get down a draft it doesn't matter what it says yes it does it, you have to be fully on like you have to be in you can tell when you're writing shit and like you shouldn't just be writing shit to get a word count like when people are like I wrote five thousand words today on Facebook I'm like well you know that's great but what is that mean what is what is that really like you're either on or you're not and like when i i feel like when i get on i can write really close like it's my attention so specific that like uh i'm i'm almost editing as i go so it's like it's not stream of consciousness but it's also it's it's more like you're it's more like you're being free on a on a narrative and symbolic level while while um you're being extremely critical on a um logic and uh grammar level so so that way i mean like if you write a sh- if you bust out a shitty fifty thousand word draft and you come back to start over it's almost like you're writing the book again like you don't want to do that that's wasting time right um so there is an equilibrium and you can't always do it like it often i have a hard drive full of books that i probably won't do anything with because I was learning how to get into that equilibrium. Like it, I think the only way to teach yourself that equilibrium is to just keep doing it over and over again. And, and, and it does come, it does come, you do learn to, to approach that and you do learn to know when you're in the zone. Um, but yeah, you're definitely, that's vital. And, And I don't think that's, that's honed enough or said enough that like it words are words, but like the, the heart of it has to be there or, 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 you're just shitting on paper, basically. So, do you do you do any outlining or anything, or are you kind of an intuitive writer who sits down with like a an idea or a word or a, a character or a title and just goes? Yeah, I tend to be the the the, the latter. I, I the last thing I did, I had a structure in mind when I started, but it was still like I like to have a maybe a, a vague idea, but overall, but in a moment to moment way, no, absolutely nothing. Just no like this scene, this needs to have, or in this section, this kind of motion needs to occur. Uh, I need to make this happen. But if you just, I've, I've found for myself, like if I just write like, Oh, well I want, you know, this guy to kill this guy, then it, and I know, like, I know exactly what's going to happen. I don't, I, I, I become too much of a pedestrian. Like I'm just like too quick to draw, to get myself from point A to point B. Whereas if, I have a vague idea and I can kind of tinker around and like use intuition and, and, and symbolism or image rather than, than like idea. Um, it's more interesting for me. And, and I think then therefore must be more interesting to a reader because if you're not surprising yourself then you're probably not going to surprise the reader because they'll be even less willing to put up with your bullshit. So, well, yeah, no, so um, if you're bored while you're writing the book, then it's going to be twice as bad for the reader. <laughs> right. Totally. Exactly. Um, so now, and some people, maybe, maybe that's not true for someone like Saramago or Delillo. Maybe they are great enough storytellers where like they can get a big idea and lead you up to that. And I don't know their, how they did their work, but I think like for the most part, you should be surprising yourself while you're working. Well, yeah, no. One of the things, because uh, I've read a lot, I've read a lot of Delilah. I really like him, and uh, I've read like you know, th- there's not a ton of interviews out there, but I've read some of them. And in one of them, there is this thing that struck me where he's like extremely fixated on the actual visual appearance of his sentences and of his paragraphs to the point mm-hmm. where to the point where when he writes, he writes in uh, a large like an. Uh, uh, 
he purposefully writes in a large font, like an absurdly large font, so that he can actually see like the architecture of the letters themselves and the way they string together and the way, like if you're looking at a page that you've typed up and you were to kind of cross your eyes a little bit and just make it blur mm-hmm. so that you can just see the shape of things. Like yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing where he, it's very visual for him. I don't know. I, 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 I like that. Yeah, I sort of get that. I mean, like a paragraph has to look a certain shape for me. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can tell that when you open up someone's book, you're like, this looks really interesting. Yeah. Like whether I even read a word, it's just like the way it's set up, this looks like compelling for some reason. Yeah, it is. It's, it's fascinating. And that like, it kind of rang true for me. So, uh, before I let you go, I just, I want to, I just want to ask like, how long does it take you to do, uh, one of these drafts? Like generally, like, can you crank one out in a month or are you talking like five months or a year? Like what's, if if you're working fast, what does fast mean? It all depends. Like I, the, the novel that came out earlier this year, I wrote the first draft of it in 10 days. Um, and then revised it for two years thereafter. Um, this, the sleep book I wrote over like four or five months. Uh, and I, that's or the original draft was twice as long as the, as what appears and printed. I, I just like voracious. I just like shout out all these ideas that I had because nonfiction, I, I had a lot of ideas for it instead of just like, like I was talking about intuition. So I had to shout all that out. And then the editing was really important, but then I don't know. Yeah. Like I really like the idea of, a, a, a book being a picture of a person's mind at a specific time in their life. Like I don't necessarily th- like if I were to write a book over five years or even three or two years, like I think the person who you are changes so rapidly that it will be like 10 people are writing the book instead of you are writing the book, at least for me. So the faster I can get it out and have that balance that we were talking about be intact, the better. Like if I could write a book in four days and feel that balance, like I definitely felt that balance when I wrote the book in 10 days, but like I've also written something over like four or five months and the balance wasn't there at all. And I've, uh, it just, uh, it all depends on the way you enter it and the way that it feels while you're going through. And, and that's why the body is really important too. Like all, it, you got to keep yourself in tune through the whole thing. I don't know. It, it, it's very, it feels very delicate and it can go wrong. Like if you take a wrong turn, you can get yourself off on the, into a way that makes the whole thing feel weird. So yeah, no. yeah. It, it's 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 comforting to hear you say that because I I think about my uh, my book and I look back on it and it's you know it's several years old and I, I read it and it's just it's really difficult to read old work and I think it's because it's a picture of me you know whenever I was writing it years ago mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know it's it do you find it hard to read your old work because of that like you get distance from it as a person and. Or maybe it's just it's hard to read one's own work unless you're really into yourself, you know. I, guess. <laughs> I don't. I don't tend to read it to read it very much. Yeah, I often. I think that if, if you do go back and you start looking at who you were, then you'll automatically start picking yourself apart. Uh, I don't. I don't feel like embarrassed of things I've written, but I definitely don't like. All I'm going to want to do is revise it if I look at it again because I'm five years older and now I think differently. So like, Oh, I did. I, I wish I'd done this differently. But I, that's why, that's why I like preserving that because I don't want my five year old five years later person to have written that book. You know, I think it's valuable to have that, that thing intact and not, not worry about it. And, and like, it gives you a place to keep building onto the next thing too. So, so there's no embarrassment. You don't look back and be like, Oh God. I, I, feel I mean, 
<laughs> I can look back at the five books I wrote before my book first book came out and be like, Jesus fucking Christ, what is this stuff? <laughs> like, that's definitely embarrassing. But fortunately, I butted my head against the wall for so long and tried hard to write to get books published that never came out that uh, shouldn't have come out. And I'm glad they didn't. But I can also see like the merit of the time, you know, like you you learn and like, I don't know, like, yeah. My, my second book was was the first book I wrote. Um, it just happened to come out second, and I look I look at some of that, and that, and I think you know like this isn't what I would do at all. But I don't know. I, I I don't think I I don't think I'm critical of it in a like I wish this didn't exist way. I just I'm glad that I've that that happened then, and I'm I'm ready for the next thing now. So. Yeah, you can't look back. You can't look back. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, well, it's been great talking to you, man. I'm, I'm a big admirer and, uh, you know, I wish you all the best with, you know, the book with nothing now out from, yeah. uh, Harper perennial and, uh, all the rest. Uh, and, and we'll look forward to, you know, seeing what, uh, what comes out of you in the, in the years to come. Thanks so much, Brad. It was really cool to talk to you and stuff. Okay. That's it. That is the program. Blake Butler. Thanks for listening. Uh, before I go, if you like the show, if you like The Nervous Breakdown, if you like uh, books and you want to help and you want to uh, throw some money into the coffers to keep this thing going, you can join the TNB Book Club. That's The Nervous Breakdown Book Club. All you got to do is go to thenervousbreakdown.com, look for Book Club in the menu bar, click it. The Book Club is nine ninety nine a month. Less than $10 a month, you get a book delivered to your door every 30 days. The books that we do... I'm going to talk to the authors on this show. So you'll read the book. You'll listen to me talk to the authors. It will enrich your life. It will help me. It will help the nervous breakdown. It will help writers in general. So if you have the money and you're feeling generous, that would be wonderful. Uh, what else? Twitter, at Other People Pod. Find us on Facebook. You know the drill. Uh, I can hear footsteps upstairs. That might be my daughter. She's, she's getting ready to walk soon. She's on two feet. She's, she's you know pulling herself up. She's holding herself up against the coffee table. She wants to walk. I don't know what I'm going to do when that happens, but it's, it's, it's coming soon. Pretty soon she'll be able to outrun me. That will add uh, another level to the experience. So thank you for listening. I'm going to be back soon with another show, another author, another conversation. And don't forget to get good rest. Meditate or something. Go for a walk. Wear yourself out. Take some melatonin. That's nice. Okay? Okay. <laughs>